Hey, it's Mike, and I just want to say thanks for checking out my podcast. I hope you like what I have to say. And if you do like what I have to say in the podcast, then I guarantee you're going to like my books. Now, I have several books, but the place to start is Bigger, Leaner, Stronger if you're a guy and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger if you're a girl. I mean, these books, they're basically going to teach you everything you need to know about dieting, training, and supplementation to build muscle, lose fat, and look and feel great without having to give up all the foods you love or live in the gym grinding through workouts that you hate. Now, you can find these books everywhere you can buy them online, you know, Amazon, Audible, iBooks, Google Play, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and so forth. And if you're into audiobooks like me, you can actually get one of them for free with a 30-day free trial of Audible. To do that, go to www.muscleforlife, that's musclef.com forward slash audiobooks, and you can see how to do that there. I make my living primarily as a writer, so as you can imagine, every book sold helps, so please do check out my books if you haven't already. Now, also, if you like my work in general, then I think you're going to really like what I'm doing with my supplement company, Legion. As you may know, I'm really not a fan of the supplement industry. I've wasted who knows how much money over the years on worthless junk supplements and have always had trouble finding products that I actually liked and felt were worth buying. And that's why I finally decided to just make my own. Now, a few of the things that make my supplements unique are, one, they're 100% naturally sweetened and flavored. Two, all ingredients are backed by peer-reviewed scientific research that you can verify for yourself because we explain why we've chosen each ingredient and we cite all supporting studies on our website, which means you can dive in and go validate everything that we say. Three, all ingredients are also included at clinically effective dosages, which are the exact dosages used in the studies proving their effectiveness. And four, there are no proprietary blends, which means that you know exactly what you're buying. Our formulations are 100% transparent. So if that sounds interesting to you, then head over to legionathletics.com. That's L-E-G-I-O-N athletics.com. And you can learn a bit more about the supplements that I have, as well as my mission for the company, because I want to accomplish more than just sell supplements. I really want to try to make a change for the better in the supplement industry, because I think it's long overdue. And ultimately, if you like what you see and you want to buy something, then you can use the coupon code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and you'll save 10% on your first order. So thanks again for taking the time to listen to my podcast, and let's get to the show. What's up? This is Mike Matthews from MuscleForLife.com, and I am back with another episode of the podcast. In this episode, I interview Menno Henselmans from BayesianBodybuilding.com, and we talk about how genetics affects your muscle and strength gains and aesthetics. Now, I was excited to get Menno on the podcast because, one, he has been requested many times by listeners, and two, I thought he would be the perfect person to talk to about this because he is one of the leaders of the evidence-based fitness movement and one of a, a handful of people, really, in this space whose work I regularly follow and recommend. As you'll see, he knows his shit. So if you've been wondering about how your genetics influence things like the rate at which you can gain muscle and strength, how big and strong you can ultimately get, uh, how your muscles look as they develop and more, then I think you're going to like this interview. So let's get to it. 
Meno, thanks for coming on the show. I've missed you a few times and I'm excited to talk to you. You're actually one of the guests that a lot of the people that listen to me have been requesting. So here we are. All right. My pleasure, Mike. Great. Yeah. So the discussion is going to be about genetics and what role they play in gaining muscle and strength. And what I was thinking is, you know, I get asked about this fairly frequently. I've written a little bit about it. I've spoken a little bit about it, but I haven't had a real in-depth discussion on it. And uh, so what I was thinking, we just kind of run down a few of the more common questions that I get, and then I'm just going to kind of pass the mic to you and, you know, let you do your thing. Sure. Cool. So let's just start at the top here. So one of the questions that I get most frequently is, is how much do genetics affect how quickly you can gain muscle and strength? And then the, the, the kind of follow-up question is usually, okay, so then what are some realistic expectations for someone uh, just getting into, into weightlifting in particular? I get that from a lot of guys that are new because, you know, they're on Instagram and they're looking at all these different people and they don't know, you know, what's drugs, what's not drugs, and they don't know what's real and what's not real in terms of time frames and so forth. So I think that's a good place to start. Right. Starting with your first question, how much do genetics play? How big is the role of genetics in how much muscle you can gain, how strong you can get? Uh, it's big. You know, to quantify how much researchers uh, for these kind of questions, they often uh, express something as a hereditary coefficient which is like the percent, it's roughly interpreted as the percentage that your genetics affect your results. Okay. So you can think of it as um, how much your genetics can predict relative to other factors, like environmental factors, in this case being your training program, your nutrition, uh, well, your sleeping, all of those things. Sure. And here we see that there is a very, very significant influence. We can start with that. It's um, so big, in fact, that in research, at least, we have people that are deemed uh, non-responders mm. because on any given training program, they don't grow any muscle at all or they gain any strength. And I'm actually not really in favor of the term non-responder because in all my years of coaching experience and as a coach, you often get the hard gainers and the people that have tried everything. Yeah. I have a lot of people that, you know, they've had five different coaches and they're like, okay, this is basically the last attempt I'm going to make. Yep. And what I've seen is I've had one person that really probably couldn't gain any more muscle. He could lose fat. He could get a six pack. He could get, he could build some strength at least. Yeah. But in terms of muscle growth, it was just, it was so little that he was already like intermediate level, so definitely yeah. not. I was going to um, say because you just said any more, so I don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think I'm not really convinced of the the presence of there actually being complete non-responders, mm -hmm. uh, but at least we see them in research, and that's probably because they didn't respond to that given program over or, you know, over you know the time period, yeah. and also exactly. how are the results measured? I mean, they're yeah, exactly. So. And we know that different people react uh, better to different programs. We can get into that as well yeah, a bit later. That, that's actually, no, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. We should talk about that. I didn't put that on the yeah. list, but I also do get asked about that. Right. So we have, the, we have these people that at least to that given program, they don't respond. And other people, we, have, we see rates of increase in those kind of studies of, I think, two to threefold. So you have people gaining like 250% strength, which is huge. Like, um, so they're, they're more than doubling their strength level. And 
other people, they, they don't really gain anything. So we have this huge variance. That is a fact. Uh, but if we look at the hereditary coefficient, we see that it's uh, around 50%. And I think for uh, obesity, the most recent estimates are actually closer to 40%. So your genes would explain 40% of uh, who gets obese and who doesn't. And that's actually less, 40% at least, than what we see in most other research. Because uh, for people that don't know, I actually came from a background of economics, psychology, and statistics. And I made the career switch from business consultant to uh, working as an online coach. And so I'm familiar with a lot of other research areas as well. And I know that in most other areas, 50% is actually deemed normal. So it's actually just seen as a normal average, uh, which is kind of almost seems too coincidental, right? Like you have you have environmental factors and you have genetic factors, and it seems that yeah, just there's a balance there. Things, yeah, it's it's about one to one. It's about 50-50. Um, so it seems too coincidental, but it, it's true for a, a ton of things, including, for example, your personality. So in, in that line, you know, like you can get screwed over by your genetics more in terms of strength training than you can get screwed over for your intelligence or your personality or your height, any other such factor. So uh, in, in that line, you know, it's not that bad. Uh, but we do just see these huge variants. And I think a lot of people may be a bit thinking about it too gloomy because they look at the extreme outliers, right? They yep. hear about these non-responders and then they think of stories like um, the most famous, I think, that has actually been verified is Andy Bolton. I often use him as an example in my PT course where uh, as the example of the most extreme outlier because I think he, he squatted, I think it was 500 pounds the first session he was in the gym or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, with and with a de 600 pound deadlift soon to follow. And I, that's just, I know, I know I one know. person that is, I mean, he's not that much of a freak, but his first deadlift ever was like 405 for, and, uh, and now, now he's pulling a year and a half later, he's pulling 600 plus. What is that? That's good. And, and, yeah. and he, he's, you would look at him. He just looks like a normal guy. Like now he looks a bit more muscular, but he's not some, you know, he's not the, the short super stocky dude. He's actually like mm -hmm. six, four and looks pretty muscular, fairly muscular, but you would never guess like you, he, he could, mm -hmm. he could, I told him he should go into gyms, and just make bets. He could just make money that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually, that's another interesting aspect of uh, genetics is that how much can you predict based on what you see, right? Right. So for strength, we know that the variance is a lot bigger. And it's actually uh, really straightforward as to why this is, why we see more variance for strength than for muscle growth. And that is because everything that affects muscle growth basically also affects your strength. Right. Because given uh, any sort of neural level, I often use the analogy of your brain being the driver and your muscles being the race car. So given any uh, level of neural development, a bigger muscle means more total force production. Mm -hmm. So, or specifically, uh, a scientist would say that a larger cross-sectional area, all else being equal, always increases total potential force output of that muscle tissue. Right. And therefore we see that we have this variance in muscle growth, Muscle can you gain, but the variance in strength is even bigger because not only we have we these morphological factors as they're called, so uh, factors like muscle size that affect your strength, we also have other 
morphological factors, like biomechanical factors. For example, the angle at which a muscle inserts on the tendon, even a very minor difference in um, this angle or pination angle of the muscle, for example, these which you cannot see at all yeah. not visually, looking at like degrees and all of this being internal in your body can make a huge difference because we are talking about these tiny angles that you can have a, a slight difference in angle that basically doubles the leverage the muscle has on a particular bone or joint. And that basically means that it also can double the force output. So you can have these two people that have the exact same amount of muscle mass and they also have the exact same level of neural development, but one of them simply has these insertion points of the muscles and the tendons on bones that uh, make that person a lot more suitable for heavy lifting. So they're actually producing the same amount of internal force. Right. I mean, the muscles are doing the same kind of work, but it can be a twofold difference in external force output, meaning they can lift twice as much weight while they only have to do half the work. Right. And I mean, I guess a simple analogy could be like the, the lever and fulcrum type of, you know, where it just, it, depending exactly. on where, how it's set up, you can, the, the, the amount of force that goes in can be disproportionately larger in terms of what goes out. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you, you can also have that uh, with cable pulleys in the gym, for example, a lot of my clients are surprised, like they have a certain exercise and they're using a certain cable pulley, and then the next session they use a different cable pulley, mm. they're like, I couldn't lift nearly as much weight. But if you're just changing the amount of pulleys, that can double the resistance. So uh, that's also why machine work, like uh, a lot of people ask, what is an impressive leg press? And my answer is there is, there is no such thing, <laughs> because the different leg press machines can have such incredibly different that's leverage very true. and action rates that you know on one machine you can barely press more than you can squat and on a different machine it's just like several fold you can just put obscene amounts of weight on there right and look at ronnie coleman and then you have these guys you know looking around and you have someone else step on the leg press and then they do the quarter leg presses and they're like oh yeah i leg press a thousand pounds and you know they can barely squat uh free plates to depth so right yeah, it's biomechanics. It's not really uh, strength. Makes and sense. Then, yeah. Then um, the other factor that we have that also explains how strong you are is basically you can group that together as neural factors. So it's like uh, how advanced the driver is, how well the driver can control the car, meaning how well can the brain control your muscles. Mm -hmm. And also more peripheral factors like your neurons, like how fast can the signal uh, transduce through your neurons and reach your muscles. But it's uh, largely analogous to the driver in the car, or you can think of it as hardware and software. How well can the software control the hardware? Hmm. You know, if you have for the computer people, I'm not even sure if this analogy is right because I'm not that good with computers, but you can have, I know that certain pieces of hardware, you can overclock them depending on how well the software functions. So you can have the same kind of graphics card, but um, like physical material, but if you have better software, it can make more use of that same card. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a good analogy. So with these three factors, you basically have the variance in strength and it includes muscle. So much bigger variance there.
So yeah, I mean, just to just to just to summarize, then, so you're going to have people whose muscles are who's who are just mechanically set up to be stronger. And then you have people whose muscles can contract more forcefully. Uh, where you know, like you were saying, the software it just it just better uses what what's available. And then what about in terms of just potential for hypertrophy, potential for size. Um, I think you had mentioned a little bit about that earlier, but that's that's really where I get asked. I mean, this is mainly guys asking because they're concerned that they're never going to be able to look like, you know, so-and-so. And I mean, you had touched on it with non-responders uh, versus hyper-responders, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. So what are some realistic, if we just kind of looked at it in terms of pounds, in, in let's say the first um, if it plays out over, let's say five years. So for muscle growth for, for guys and then also girls, I mean, I don't get asked very frequently by, by girls, but there are women out there that are concerned with it. Um, based on your experience and research, what do you say are some realistic expectations? Uh, assuming, assuming that, you know, they're following at least a well-designed training program and they, and they know what they're doing with their nutrition and, you know, they're not under eating or eating too little protein or doing anything, you know, obviously wrong. Let me pull up the exact figures uh, cool. I have on this for my PT uh, course. So, scrolling. All right. So, first thing is that you should generally think of this as percentage of body weight increase. Uh, because if you think of it as pounds, it, you know, it can be useful. And you have the pretty common rule that novices, like novice men, most men can gain about two pounds a month. Uh, like purely lean tissue I'm talking about. Right. Uh, when they start training, so novices. Um, but beyond that, it gets very uh, tricky because you know you have one guy that weighs 200 pounds, another guy that weighs on 60 pounds, and obviously you know they're gonna have a very big difference in how many pounds of muscle they can add. Mm -hmm. So I generally like to express everything in terms of percentage increase in body weight gain. And the nice thing about that is then you also take the gender difference into account because. Uh, contrary to popular belief, men and women actually have the same muscular potential. So given the same starting muscle mass, same baseline muscle mass, they can actually grow the same amount. And I have a very in-depth article on that on my website, The Natural Muscular Potential of Women, I think it's called. And I've read that article, out. I liked it. Yeah, you can check that for all the references or mm -hmm. listeners can. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of research from uh, protein synthesis, from uh, chronic training studies that actually looked at uh, muscle growth and also from uh, elite athletes like cross-sectionally and it all, it all points in the same direction that the muscular potential is actually the same although they, sh they do respond differently to different training programs so men and women should not generally train and eat exactly the same but that's a different topic to the actual figure and just just to not leave people in the mystery so then what's the big difference there it's it's where women start right is that they start with so little. So the big difference between men and women in terms of muscle is that women start with so, so much less, right? Like the average yeah, so woman. They, exactly. They just weigh a lot less and they have higher body fat percentage, like naturally because boobs and, well, other factors as well. But uh, hips and, you know, got to rear children yeah, and stuff. These factors, you, they start with a lot lower baseline level of fat-free mass. But given the same starting point of fat-free mass in terms of pounds or kilograms, the muscular potential is the same. Hmm. So, uh, and given the same starting weight, the potential is also very similar. So if you have a 170 pound male and a 170 pound woman, there's very little difference in what they're going to uh, be able to accomplish in terms of strength and 
uh, muscle growth for power men perform better uh, which is why uh, in most sports men do dominate uh, but there's also cultural differences there so right that'd be anyway good, i would like to have you on another time to talk about that that'd be, that'd be uh, interesting any, sure. anything anything that uh, any of the episodes that are more specifically geared towards women do particularly well because uh a lot of the stuff tends to be more male oriented so yeah it's that's true that's that's also what i discussed in the article there's this huge you know, you're inclined to say discrimination, but it's not discrimination. It's just a disproportionate amount of men in the industry, yeah. and therefore a disproportionate amount of um, male coaches and coaches receiving male clients, etc. So yeah, it's, it's almost it's almost a supply and demand thing. There's there's a bias yeah, there yeah. that just kind of has it's naturally just, developed. It's just uh, differences in the the market population, right? But as a reference, by the way, my audience is about two to one male to female, and that's pretty consistent across. Like my coaching applications, the clients I work with, uh, Facebook. I haven't checked my website data in like a year, but I think it was the same there as well. Hmm. Uh, I'm like anyway. 60% men, 40% yeah. women. So there, there are uh, enough women that it would be a productive conversation. <laughs> yeah. So the actual rates that uh, I think are realistic based on uh, the research, my experience mm -hmm. uh, that I have in my PT course, novice individuals can expect to gain about 1% uh, of body weight per week. And that basically, uh, that's basically cut in half as soon as you're at the intermediate level. And intermediate here means like seriously trained. Now, 1% so, 1, 1 per week? No, per month. Yeah, per week. So that's like... Well, that'd be uh, like, so somebody is 200 pounds, then you're talking about two pounds. I mean, because that, that, then that, scale, that scales down then in time, right? Yeah, it scales down very rapidly. But like, okay, good. Yeah, I just want to make sure everybody, because the yeah. guy's going to be like, what? I can gain. <laughs> I can yeah, I, I can gain for my first year. I can gain, you know, if I'm starting at, you know, 150 pounds, I can gain, all you know, whatever, 50 pounds that's, in the first year. That's the other thing. Remind me like in a second what the time frame we should okay, attach good. to. This. Sure. Um, but yeah, so for a novice, which basically means like starting with untrained, right? Okay. Completely untrained. Right. Uh, 1%. So yeah, that's aggressive. And that's... Uh, I think realistic, but achievable for the average individual. Okay. So this and is what for, you for how achieve. long do you see that playing out? Not long. Like okay. you're talking about six months or so, probably. Okay. At best. Uh, but yeah, I can. I think in your first year, you can see very significant growth rates. Like I gained, I started at 65 kilos myself, and then I actually sort of unintentionally dropped down to 60 kilos, and I was. That's really, really low weight because I was already six foot at that point, uh, close to six foot one even. Mm. And uh, then within a year, I bulk up to about 80 kilos, still with abs. Wow. So wow. I then spent about 10 more years basically recomping yep. to get to that same weight, but in contest shape. And yep. then now in the last five years or so, I managed to get to like six more kilos. So, yeah, it scales down really fast. But the thing is, uh, how many people start off on an optimized program? Right. Almost nobody does. Right. So everyone, you know, they, they have to trial and error. They need to figure things out. So it's even uh, among my clients because it's still rare that you have a novice start off training completely optimally, doing everything right because uh, either the adherence just isn't there yet or they have other goals, or they're you know they're only willing to train twice a week, even if you know they uh, they have the coaching 
often it's still not going to be they're actually maxing out on their potential. Right. So yeah, but yeah, everything being right, one percent uh, per week of body weight. Okay. Uh, can be gained like lean tissue. Okay. Well, maybe like a little fat. But and would you mostly. would you say that that's right down? That's for a person with average genetics, or you say that's for a person that responds better than average, no, it's, or it's, just it's the average person? Me. Okay. Yeah. And this basically this basically cut in half as soon as someone reaches the intermediate stage. So that you'll be like 0.5%. And then it's cut in half again once they reach the advanced stage and you're looking at like 0.25% per week of body weight. So that's like, it's very little. That's what a lot of people, they don't recognize on the skill unless they're meticulously tracking everything. Yep, yep. And then also, I mean, your diet has to be pretty consistent in terms of even macronutrients there because if your carbs are going up and down, you know, it's hard to see exactly. that what's really happening with your weight. Yeah, if you drink alcohol, you wake yep. up, you're, it has a diuretic effects or you're dehydrated. Uh, if you have a, a bowel movement one day, but then yep. the other day, all of these things can have variations in body weight that are a lot larger than uh, what you will gain on a weekly basis as an advanced individual. Right, and that's probably why, I mean, you're, you're probably looking at your average weight over time in that, in that scenario, yep. right? Yeah. And as a reference, what I did, which is now within a year or two years maybe, I did everything I could for a year, and I would consider myself like an elite level trainee, not because I'm like world class uh, in absolute terms, but in terms of my genetic potential, I think I'm pretty much there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I did like everything in my power to gain as much muscle as possible, which I usually do. But that year, I made sure I was meticulous with everything, and I made very sure to record for two weeks straight under the most stable conditions I could achieve uh, with set carbohydrate intake, set water intake, everything, uh, record caliper measurements, circumferences. And I basically concluded from that that I gained one pound of lean tissue. And I was really happy with that because I expected zero. So yeah. I was still uh, likely making progress, uh, which was very good news to me because that's what basically what I wanted to find out. But yeah, when you're at the elite level as a natural trainee, you're looking at yearly progress. Mm. So yeah, you're looking at very sharply diminishing returns to your training time. And that's what I was referring to earlier, like the time frames we attach to this. Now I'm going to make a very controversial statement, but I think um, based on what I've seen in terms of um, people that train optimally and also some uh, historical data of individuals like Steve Reeves and people that trained really hard in the, the uh, classic era, I think you can ver come very close to approximating your genetic potential within three years of optimal progress. Now, distinction here being very crucial that optimal progress is not total training time. You can easily, and I've done so myself, waste three years of training time, Absolutely. not making any I mean, long-term progress. I probably wasted, I don't, yeah, at least three or four years before I really got yeah. my act together. Exactly, it's, it's common even. So this is absolutely not total training time. Like if these people are like, oh, I've been training for three years, I'm there, no, 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 absolutely not. Yeah, you've been exercising is, for three years. There's a difference there. <laughs> yeah. So I'm uh, talking about three years of doing everything right and making uh, the best progress you can make. So theoretically, if we have a certain individual, say uh, a completely robotic individual, then I would be confident that a very good coach could make that person achieve his or her 
uh, genetic potential or come very close to it within three years. And probably 80% of that, something like that, 80% uh, is actually a figure that comes from a lot of data. The 80-20 rule, it's based on actual empirical data because most uh, functions in life have a power law if they're not normally distributed. Uh, so 80% is probably a good estimate for the first year, something like that. Um, but again, stressing that this is the period of time doing everything right. So I think people in general in the industry, they underestimate what you can achieve, but they overestimate how long it takes. So it doesn't require, like you see people, you know, it, will, it will easily take 20 years to reach your genetic potential. I don't think so. I think there, the body simply does not have that kind of adaptation because evolutionarily speaking, it makes no sense to have an adaptive system that uh, is either capable of or requires 20 years of training to reach its full potential. I mean, what kind of evolutionary stimulus are we talking about that you know requires 20 years of doing something before your body has mastered it? Right. It's, it just doesn't occur in nature. So I think in most things you would do lo looking at more years before your uh, mastering skill. But yeah, I think that about sums it up. And then and just on that point, that's a good segue into the next question because that is then something I'm also asked frequently about is, is is how to predict. And again, this is usually this is usually guys that are new to training and they want to know is it even possible for you to look like so 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 and so. Um, what are your thoughts on the? I mean, it's based on a bit of research, but there's um, some like I mean, it's just information out there correlating. You know, basically your your the ceiling of of your FFMI, what that can be naturally. Um, and then at what point, you know, is it clearly drugs? At what point is it in the gray? Like, do you think there's any, do you think there's any semi-accurate way for somebody new to weightlifting, uh, to go realistically, you know, I could probably get to somewhere in this range uh, yeah. or is it I mean, something that, you know, they just have to, it's going to take years and then, at, then they can make a prediction. Yeah. Let me pull this up because in my PT course, I have reference data on the, uh, FF. MI. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah, it's here. All right, so the FFMI for people that don't know is the fat free mass index. It's like BMI, which is body mass index. But BMI is kind of sucks for strength trainees because it's just a relation between weight and height. Right. It doesn't say anything about your fat percentage. Right. It's more so, for population analysis, right? Yeah, exactly. It's for people that don't lift because then you can assume a certain level of fat free mass based on their gender and height because if someone's not training then you know their and their protein intake is somewhat normal you can uh, be sure that they have a certain level yeah and, and, and age right? because as they get older they're gonna yeah, use age. it whatever. yeah yeah exactly uh, although actually it's mostly disuse and not age itself but mm -hmm. that's another topic so um you have body mass index kind of useless and that's why we have the healthy mass index that researchers uh, developed to look at how muscular you are because it relates your fat-free mass to your height and it completely ignores fat mass. So it just says how much lean body mass, which is roughly a proxy for muscle mass, you're carrying. Now, uh, researchers have studied this and there's a very infamous or famous study that uh, basically concluded that a fat-free mass of 25 is as good as it gets for a natural trainee. So there are a lot of very serious problems with this study. And this, consequently, the idea that 
you know, a fat free mouse index of 25 is about as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. For and one, just to put it in perspective, just so everybody knows, so like, if what's do you know what your FFMI is? So if people want to look at your physique and go, so what is this? What does 25 look like? Like, I know I'm right around 24. And so people that know that I will look like, you know, so like I'm a much more muscular than the average person type of guy. So 25 is pretty big. Do you know yours? Actually, I'll fill it in right here. Just, just, I, to, give, oh, just to give listeners so, a visual on what does that look like, you know? So my normalized fat-free mass index is or in my last counter shape, it's actually only 23.6. Right. So that's to show that, you know, 25 is, is big. Yeah, you're a big dude at 25. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, it depends. Like, in person, it varies. So I think a lot of people, it goes both ways. Like, some people are like, oh, you look bigger in the pictures. And I think I do because, you know, pictures are always great and you're flexing and you're pumped and everything. Yeah. And the longer you are, you get that effect where it just, you look bigger, exactly. like you look, you know, your, your weight almost doesn't make sense for how big you look. Yeah. In general, like the leaner you are, the better you can look on photo, but the worse you look in a t-shirt. Yeah. So. Did you get uh, when, when, when you would get really lean for shoots and stuff to get, like if you wear a long sleeve shirt where people are like, do you even, what happened? Did you, <laughs> do you even go to the yeah. gym anymore? Yeah. The, well, I have two redeeming factors there. Um, because uh, for one, my forearms get crazily vascular. So if there's like some some sleeve not covering my forearms, it's like <laughs> there's no mistake. Yeah, just yeah. because my forearms are so vascular. And second thing is why um, a lot of people actually think I look bigger in person. Mostly, I think it's the difference between people that have seen a lot of very big dudes and they see me in person and like I'm not that impressive. Right. I have a bigger. Uh, impression from the photos but on the other hand you have people that haven't really seen a lot of truly big guys and then when they see me they're like oh shit six foot one 200 pounds is actually you know yeah. a big dude yeah, yeah, yeah. so and i have like my shoulders are genetically my best body part so i have quite wide shoulders and combined with height is that especially here in asia and like when i was uh, touring in india people are like holy crap yeah, like, yeah you're like godzilla over there yeah <laughs> Exactly, because I'm like literally a full head taller and very broad shouldered. So that's funny. Yeah, it all depends on who you ask. Sure. But anyway, fat free mass index. You have that study that concluded 25 is about as good as it gets. But all that study really did is they got together a bunch of like muscular guys, strong guys. Like they had some truly high level uh, people in there, like international bodybuilders, uh, powerlifters that won re set records. And they basically concluded that uh, in that sample, 25 was as good as it got. Mm -hmm. Thing is, it was just getting a bunch of people together. So, you know, there's there's no way to conclude from that that um, just because in this sample it didn't occur that it's not possible. Right. So, and actually, that same study concluded that it is possible because they analyzed the records of pre-steroid, like legitimately almost could not have been steroid uh, physiques like Steve Reeves and like the, the 30s, early 40s, where steroids simply were not in circulation lab or you'd be having, you were looking like a serious conspiracy theory level stuff to think that these people were on steroids. And and you think, that, you think that with Reeves? Because I mean, testosterone was pretty widely available at that time, right? Yeah, Reeves was actually sort of a, in the transition period where I think Reeves was natural, but there are some indica some people, I think there was a letter of someone saying that he wasn't, 
Um, yeah, I remember and, reading about it, and I was like, huh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, so it was like a bit in the in the, the mix gray. era. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It went way before that as well. Sure. And let me pull it up as well. So the reference 28.0 is the largest natural trainee ever recorded. That's big. So, yeah, that's, you know, three points <laughs> above 25. And I'll give the other reference data as well here. So normalized fat-free mass index. 28 is the largest natural trainee ever scientifically documented. Here's the other thing. We have a case study of another world-class natural pro bodybuilder uh, that was followed with blood work for a very long time period during his, basically his whole contest prep. And his fat-free mass index was 25.4. Okay. So there again goes the idea of uh, it not being possible to get above that level. It's right. just rare. Right. So that 25 level is where, you know, the average person probably, it's a pretty decent sample that they're not going to get above 25 while they're six pack lean. Right. Make distinction there because, you know, um, sumo wrestlers are actually among the largest, most muscular individuals on the planet. Uh, if you look at uh, cross-sectional data and a lot of these guys, they don't do strength training and uh, they basically just sit around and eat all day while they do a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they, they're really, really fat, and it's basically um, just a genetic fact that the more fat you have, the more muscle you can carry, sure. which is why they're so incredibly muscular underneath the huge amount of fat. Yeah. Um, you also see this in many powerlifters, bodybuilders, and it's the infamous story of people saying, like, oh, my fat-free mass index is this, and you know I have these standards, and my, my biceps is this amount of inches, so all of these guys are all really small. Let's talk again when you're in contest. Shape. Yeah, go, go. Yeah. Let's start at 10% body fat. Let's start there yeah. and then let's see how things are looking. And then let's go, and you know. This being a true 10%, like full six pack yeah. abs level. Yep. So, you know, not 10%. Like a lot of guys, they, they think I'm close to 10% because they almost have abs. In, well, the, right, in the right lighting where like they're yeah, you know, twisting. Exactly. <laughs> like super selfie lighting, MySpace yeah. angle. Yeah, no, like, uh, like abs, no flexing type, you know. Yeah. In, in reality, most muscular trainees have serious abdominal definition at about 15% body fat. Mm. So uh, for a muscular individual, uh, if you do not have any abs, um, okay, the harsh bodybuilding uh, frame of reference would be you are fattest. <laughs> so, <laughs> for bodybuilding terms, not having any apps at all, there is there's no reason for a natural bodybuilder to ever go at high in body fat percentage. Either. I agree. So, uh, but again, this being body fat, bodybuilding standards, right? Sure, so, sure. So that's you know, a good point. Saying, so, so on that FFMI data, so I mean, that's that's also I've written an article about it and kind of presented in that this is interesting information. I think it is valuable and it gives us insight, but you know, it doesn't mean it's a hard and fast rule. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So it's what I did with the calculator uh, in my PT course. I express it as a um, actually this is not yet in the PT course, but we're building a calculator at least for uh, cybernetic fitness, and it expresses uh, the probability that this can be attained naturally. Hmm. So you could frame it like that, and then you know, twenty-five comes about the level that. There is a significant chance that this individual is on steroids, but it is very possible to attain naturally. Mm. So, as always, you know, people want the magic answer, and it's like when you're you've done a, a test at college, and people ask, "How did you do?" 
they're not really asking how you did. They're asking how they did because they want to compare themselves to you. And that's the same when people ask, you know, is that guy natural? They they really don't care if that guy is natural. They want to know, can I look like that? Exactly. And it's a nonsensical question because you look different. You have different genetics. You'll never know if that person was natural or not. Yep. It doesn't change anything. All you can do is maximize your own muscular potential, be the best be you can be. As the cliche goes, it's a cliche because it's absolutely true. Yep. And the army fucked up when they, when they moved away from that. That was a better slogan than whatever they changed. It was like, <laughs> they changed like army strong or something. Be all you can be is so much better. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's all you can do. So yeah, yeah. look at all these guys and doesn't make I, sense. doesn't have any practical information for your life. I agree. And I mean, to that point, it's even where a lot of people, I mean, drugs are very prevalent in not just sort of bodybuilding, but in weightlifting in general. And just because uh, uh, people would be, would be surprised if they knew what people, and I've said this many times in the gym are on drugs and are not on drugs. Cause just cause someone uh, looks you know, by bodybuilding standards, pretty bad. Like, you know, they're overweight and uh, they don't really have much in the way of proportionate muscle development. It, you know, a lot of people that are on drugs, that's the state, that's, that's what it is. That's what they've gotten out of it, yeah. you know? And, and then, and then, and then on the con and on the other, on the other hand, you have people that look quite good, that stay lean, that have done a good job building their body in an intelligent way. And, you know, they look great and they're not on drugs. So, you know, it, there are obvious cases and when people are scrolling around on Instagram, yeah, there are guys that there's no question, absolutely no question. Their shoulders are bigger than their heads and their FFMI would be, you know, whatever, 30 plus, of course, drugs. But, you know, to that point, it's hard to really know because just because someone looks good doesn't mean drugs. Just because someone looks bad, but they're just kind of big and strong, you know, that could absolutely mm -hmm. be drugs. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's uh, the other reference point I had here. It's really interesting. In that study, they also looked at steroid users mm -hmm. to compare them with the natural trainees. And the average steroid user had a fat-free mass of 24.8. So actually below the supposed natural limit. Yep. And let me see if I can pull this up somewhere as well. I have also calculated the fat-free mass indices of individuals that are clearly not natural. Right. Okay, yeah. So... No, I don't have their fat free mass indices here, but yeah, at least the percentage is that if you would do the math on the probability, the percentage that they are in fact natural, uh, you get that guys like Ronnie Coleman, uh, Jay Cutler, Dorian Yates, it's 0%. Sure. It's just, there's no rounding. Uh, like statistically, there was just, there's no chance in hell you're going to look like that naturally. Yeah. yeah. Which aligns with common sense, right? Right. Have you seen just to that point? Have you seen the picture of or a few pictures of Ronnie Coleman? Because he said himself on I was like some interview or something that he started doing steroids at 23, I think he said. And really? yeah, yeah, actually, um, I'll, I'll find it after this. I've written about it. And I even linked to where he himself was talking about it. And but if you see pictures, have you seen pictures of him even like by his own? I don't know why he'd be lying then. He just was open about it saying, yeah, this is when I started doing it. And you see pictures of him at, around that, like right in before he got on drugs. And mm -hmm. he to this point, yeah. his, I guarantee you his FFMI was quite high. He was fucking huge, <laughs> like impressive. I mean, bigger than he, he could have been one of these guys on Instagram, you know, with a million plus followers, even before drugs. Yeah. But I actually 
I'm, I'm not sure of Ronnie Coleman's history, like at what age he attained what, but I had it on good account that he attained his pro card before he started Cooks. So I'm not sure if that matches I, up. I with think, that. yeah, I mean, again, when we get all, I'll find it, I'll email it to you. That may be, I, I, it was like over a year ago or something that I came across it where he was talking about, I believe that's true. I believe that was like the timeline because he got introduced to it by another professional bodybuilder was like, dude, you need to try this shit because look, you, you're ridiculous. You know what I mean? And he's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's is no, I, I absolutely believe that. Like I've heard that about Ronnie Coleman too and like some other guys that are just already obscenely big um, before they uh, start using drugs. And I mean that makes sense because at the top elite level, yes. those are the individuals you'd expect to find, right? They they have it all. Yep. Like they have the genetics and the drugs and the dedication. Yeah, and it's like that so, with any sport. I mean, you have the, the the best football players, or or even just anyone that makes it to the NFL was a was a genetic freak their entire life. They were better, you know. They were the best. They stepped on the field at whatever six years old and were just better than anybody. And that was basically the story of their life until they made it to the NFL. <laughs> yeah, that's actually an um, an interesting thing about the relation between genetic potential and dedication. In my experience, it is strongly negative, being that the most Talented individuals often do not have the dedication that, especially intermediate level trainees have. Mm -hmm. In my experience, I think the optimal lies about intermediate level or even is just completely negative with uh, the more hard gainer you are, the more you're willing to do. Mm -hmm. Like uh, in the Netherlands, for example, we have this gymnast, Yuri van Gelder, is a great example. I thought about posting that during the Olympics because there was this scandal that now, on the day before his event, I'm not really sure of the particulars, but on the day before his competition or something, he was partying, using cocaine. He had a history of cocaine use as well. So, you know, you're talking about uh, someone performing in the Olympics and they cannot muster the dedication <laughs> not to go drinking and using drugs the day before the event. Yeah. I mean, that's... If you compare that to like amateur level bodybuilders that I'm coaching, if you would give that dedication to Yuri Gelder, world we domination. Have, yeah, we would have a specimen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a, I, a friend of mine. He was he ran track in in high school, and he was like one of the fastest kids in in Florida. He didn't really he didn't take it very seriously, but I mean, he would go to you know before a run, he would just like go to McDonald's and just eat a couple hamburgers and show up and not really even warm up and then just run really fucking fast, faster than everybody. And never, he just didn't pay attention to anything. It was just something he did. And talking about genetics, his dad uh, had a, was briefly in the NFL as a running back. So, I mean, he just, he just had it and he was just like, yeah, whatever. And he didn't care. So he didn't like go anywhere with it. But you know, if he would have, I'm sure he could have really gone far. Yeah. That, that's the thing. If you, if you just have it, you don't appreciate it. Right. If you only have, if you have to work for it, you appreciate it. Hundred percent. Same thing with money. If you know kids that come from rich yeah. families, if they just inherit money or just have always been around money, it doesn't mean anything. It's just who cares. It's, yeah. uh, you know. Absolutely. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. So so great. I think I think that's a good encapsulation of FFMI. And I think you know um, you, you're mentioning this PT course, which when we get to the end, you can tell everybody where they can find this information, where they can find your stuff. Because I know people are going to be wondering now, where's this calculator? I want to see it. And uh, and I think it's a, though good for just people to know if you go look at uh, you can you can use Menno's calculator if it's available obviously it's going to be it's part of a course but also if you just look at FFI ca calculators in general you can get an idea of I think it's fair that I would say um, 
I don't know if you agree with this, Menno, but 25 to 28 is probably the realistic uh, upper limit for most people that are getting into weightlifting. Yeah. So I can, I can give some more figures here because I have okay. it pulled up anyway. Cool. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger would still be 0%. Like there's just, there's no way. Mm. So, and let's uh, just give his numbers real quick. So people know, like he was what? Six foot one is, is his height. Six two. Yeah. I think, yeah, it was about my height. I think so. Six foot one. And when I he was on stage. Not, no, it was, I think it was like a hundred kilos stage. Right. About, shape. I think it was like 230, 235 pounds maybe. Yeah. So <laughs> way beyond natural. Uh, potential and not and, and lean, but not necessarily as lean as what we've seen, you know, uh, in more recent decades. Yeah, not, not modern bodybuilding lean, but yep. you know, for any standard lean, very lean, yes, yeah. And then we have some. Um, so I also did these calculations Martin Birken and Alberto Nunez, okay, both great physiques. We'd be looking at uh, 86% probability that they're natural now, without making any claims about whether they're natural or not. For a lot of people, these are physiques that can be obtained naturally. Right. Uh, Nafalia Melo, like 98% probability of being naturally achievable. Not too surprising because she doesn't compete in bodybuilding or anything. Right. Uh, Frank Zane and Ziz, you're looking at the range of 21% probability of being natural. Interesting. So now, that makes sense with Zane, but what was, uh, I mean, Ziz's numbers, what, were, what, what information are you putting in there? I'm curious. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just have this uh, oh, percentage okay. outputs. But yeah, Ziz, it fluctuated a lot. I probably had Ziz's top numbers. So, uh, also not. Like, you know, because he was very open at his drug use. I feel like his physique earlier on, uh, when he was a bit smaller, but he was very lean, that look is, uh, I mean, I think that's attainable. I mean, it's, it's going to take quite a bit of time to gain that enough muscle. And obviously, you're not going to be able to stay that lean all year round naturally, or at least not without ruining your without feeling like shit. But, you know, I, I would think that someone could naturally achieve that look and maintain it for a little bit and if they want to do pictures and whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't have, I think Ziz's like body, I mean, his waist was smaller. And I think aesthetically, you know, he, he beats me uh, in several ways. But, you know, when I'm at my leanest and I've gotten to where I would be comparable, at least in terms of like size and leanness, I just don't look, I didn't, you know, as good as he did at his leanest because his body is just better built for it. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, just, he had these insane shoulder trap and chest yep. um, insertion points that just make his muscles look so much fuller than mine as well, whatever look. And then you have so, that small waist with then, you know. Exactly. And the last figure I have is Mark Fit. Uh, okay, not yeah. as well in, in evidence-based circles, I think, but he's like 92% achievable naturally. He's just, he's really lean mostly. And his level of muscularity is, you know, very respectable, but not uh, something that, you would accuse someone of steroid usage for. Right. Awesome. So that's, I think that, that's great. And, and to, 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 to just uh, point out that you're talking about achievable naturally. So people that are listening, it's not that he's saying these people are natural or natural, or whatever, but it's just, it, that's a good reference point of going, is it possible? Yes. There's a very yeah. good chance it's possible. Or in the case of Frank Zane, nah, not so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, there might be the odd individual that can actually look like Zane naturally, but, you know, it's the odd individual. Yeah, so, statistically speaking, unfortunately, anyone listening is probably not that person. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and that's the other thing. Even if you attain that fast free mass index, you will not look exactly like that person because you have different insertion points, different muscle lengths. The best genetically blessed individuals often have very full muscle bellies, mm -hmm. which creates that just completely convex, concave look that many uh, humans find pleasing to the eye, find aesthetic, uh, whereas you don't have these uh, empty spaces like um, some individuals have, they have short muscles. So if they get a really large muscle, it looks like unnatural, like these bolts they have, and it doesn't flow as well as other individuals. Also, for example, your abdominal structure, some people just have this crazy textbook-like six-pack app, and other people have an eight-pack, and other people, they, they don't have separation at all in, in certain pieces of it, or yep. there's this huge gap in between. Yep. Or like, I mean, me, I have I have staggered abs, and it's kind of like a four, six, uh, something in between. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, unfortunately, yeah. that's just the way I came. Which is, this exactly. is a good segue into, I think, one of the, this is the, the point that I get asked about a lot, is this point of how, so what, what, what do genetics, what's their, how much do they determine how your muscles are going to look? Or, uh, there's, there's, I guess, two parts to that, like how big can individual muscles get? Um, obviously, with guys, it's a lot of questions about chest and biceps and occasionally calves. And, uh, you know, girls don't usually ask about how big certain muscles can get, but these days it's kind of about butt, I guess, more than, more than anything else. Um, so I think this is a good segue in, into that. You can, you can predict, it's actually hard to predict. You can predict it a bit um, because, you know, you cannot change your insertion points, the length of uh, the muscle, at least not visually, you can actually change the muscle length, but it doesn't make a lot of visual difference mm -hmm. because it's internal. It's muscle fascicle length. But... A muscle is actually going to change shape when you train it and it's inevitable and you can change it to some extent like for example uh, the traps being an obvious part you can emphasize the upper or lower traps uh, to a lesser extent you also have the different heads of the hamstrings for example and a lesser extent still you have the different heads of the two heads of the biceps you can emphasize you get one bigger so you have bigger peaks or you get the other bigger and it's it's more flat and full uh, but you cannot really predict that well how it's going to change. And to a large extent, uh, especially for a natural bodybuilder, where the end goal is just maximum muscle growth uh, in pretty much every muscle group, then, you know, to that extent, in a very long-term perspective, it's not really up to your control. So there, your muscle size is going to, sh uh, shape is going to change as a result of the growth. But it's a limited change and one you cannot really do much about. So... Uh, you have a certain way that you look and either relish it or go cry for the rest of your life because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. Um, I, I talk about talking about biceps in particular, cause that's also, then that's a common thing is biceps peak. Uh, so, you know, you're saying that you can influence it a little bit. What does that really look like though? And what does that look like in terms of, of training? So let's say someone's listening saying, I wish I had more bicep peak. Is there anything they can do specifically? You can a little, I'm going to refer people to uh, my muscle-specific hypertrophy article there. because I. Uh, it's a bit dated article, but it still describes very well, uh, especially this, like what you can do to emphasize different heads. I'll link it down. I'll, I'll link it in the uh, like description and stuff so people can go read it. All right. That's good. Yeah. And I think you asked one more question uh, about genetics. 
that I missed? Um, yeah, so so just the the last couple points were the, the the size of how big can you know how much does genetics play a role in individual muscle groups? So um, just as how individuals can be hyper responsive to to weightlifting, is it also true that certain muscle groups can be hyper responsive? Because you know people seem to have what is generally referred to as a genetic strength that muscle group that for some reason you know, just exploded. And then other muscle groups, like for me, my experience has been my chest and my biceps have always just been high responders to where I've actually like toned down the volume because I felt like it was getting a little bit, it, it, it forced me to like, my shoulders always seem to be just very stubborn. And so as the bigger my bigger, my chest and biceps got, mm-hmm. the more my shoulders looked bad. So I had to like in, but my calves, for example, have been uh, mm-hmm. a, a never ending source of frustration. I, I hereby dub that the Schwarzenegger genotype. <laughs> Big biceps and chest. And no calves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you still had some calves, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about myself here. Although I have a little, I have something now. I mean, I work for it. It's just, it's just slow. Yeah, same here. Yeah. The nice thing is that based on the very limited research we have, we know that different muscle groups can have exceedingly different genetic potential and Again, based on the very limited research that we have, I'm not really convinced of this, but uh, at least in animals, it suggests that there is in fact almost no relation between different muscle groups and their genetic potential. Now, I'm pretty sure that there are certain genetic factors, um, also some that we know of, certain genes that you have, mm-hmm. certain systemic factors, like how much testosterone you have being a very common, although actually overrated one. And these determine muscle muscular potential for your whole body. But in principle, uh, some core components, like how many satellite cells you have, how much myonuclear addition can take place, these very internal components of the muscle tissue itself that you cannot see, and that vary in each different muscle group, they are very, very influential for how much muscle can be built, and they can vary a lot in different regions of your body. Right. So you commonly see individuals that have like uh, strong points and weak points. For some people, it's quite pronounced. Other people's are more like in between everywhere. And you know what you don't really see, and this is actually a good example of that, where I say, I think this is limited research that we have. Like some people take it to extreme and they say, well, there's, there's no relation because that's what the research says. But how often do you see an individual, you know, that has like truly, really impressive upper body or pecs and just no biceps, for example? Right. It, it doesn't happen. No. So, you know, there no. is a correlation there. It's just, it's obvious. But yeah, you, you definitely have strong points and weak points. Yeah. And, and there's also muscle fiber types that, that can come into play too, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, I just in my, what I, I was really just kind of curious on calves in particular, I came across some research that just indicated that uh, some calves, some people's calves are high in, in fast twitch and some people's calves are higher in slow twitch. And that alone can explain a bit of why some people have, you know, good calves and rarely ever, if ever train them. And then other people mm-hmm. like me will train them quite frequently. And, you know, with higher rep ranges, lower rep ranges, really work at it and, and get not very much out of it. Yeah, that's true. And the thing with the calves, actually, I have a specific article on that as well. I have three reasons your calves aren't growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing with the calves is that actually the genetic potential doesn't appear to be uh, lower and what you see in almost all elite level competitors is that there is a nearly one to one to one ratio between the neck, the calves, and the upper arms hmm. in terms of circumference. But 
the calves do uh, have the potential to suffer or shine greatly depending on the attachment point of especially the gastrocnemius mm. and the length of uh, the tibia. Mm. So what you probably have and what I have too is that you have quite long lower legs yes. and the muscle uh, is attached uh, quite high up on the yeah, bone. So, so it has to stretch a longer distance. Yeah, and it's it's just that one part. You can get like a nice, uh, if you flex it, you get this nice bulge. But if you're just standing, then it doesn't appear uh, very impressive because you have this long lower leg and indeed it's, it's stretched over a significant part. Whereas other people, the calves just sort of flare out more. It's like an exaggerated version of quad sweep. Some people have a lot more of it than others. I also have very little quad sweep, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually a very similar uh, structure, not the size, unfortunately, of the quads of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and whereas other people, they, they just flare out way to the sides. Yeah. So, uh, same with the calves. So, for calves, you can have uh, my calves, for example, they're the same size as my neck and my arms, at least, uh, last time I checked. So, uh, but it, it doesn't appear that way, like depending on what clothing you wear, etc. So, the calves in particular are very. Uh, a very big difference in appearance, whereas their actual muscle growth potential can be uh, quite good. Hmm. That, that's a good point, actually, because um, you know, taking looking at my calves, flexed, they look quite differently. <laughs> they look quite different than unflexed. And you know, even measuring them with, there's a guy that works with me who has visually more impressive calves, and we've measured, and and we have like I'm, I don't know, he might have a little bit of size on me, but he has mm -hmm. the, the the muscle insertion point is just you know it, for 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 visuals visual appearance his is better yeah exactly. uh, okay so the last point and this is something you did touch on um is is so that's that's in terms of size and in genetics and how they play a role in response to weightlifting what about look so you've been mentioning things like and people hear this stuff like insertion points and muscle bellies and um you know if you could just quickly kind of explain to people what this means and how does it play out visually and how the, do the genetics uh how do genetics you know influence how we're going to look like you know you can have two people that just do a bunch of the same chest type of training for six months and why does one of why does that one person have that square armor plate perfect looking chest type of setup and the other person is maybe rounder and droopier or whatever um and the reason why i think it's worth touching on is there's a lot of uh there are a lot of people out there trainers coaches co trainers coaches that will claim that you know getting that perfect looking chest that, mo that you know that, that most guys want is just a matter of training the right way that like if you don't have it it means you're just training incorrectly and you need to give them money and they'll show you how to do it yeah uh, the, the thing is like uh, the muscle insurgent and origin points they are fixed you're not going to do anything about that so um, that's the part of the appearance that's just you, you can do nothing about so this means that some people will have a bit longer muscles and they have a larger muscle belly relative to the bone than other people hmm. which means that some people get this really full muscle muscular look and when they're really muscular it's like muscle all over the body just flows into each other uh, a great example of that is phil heath who has that everything just flows into each other whereas other individuals it's more uh, the joints and the bones they're a lot more pronounced because there is room there there's hmm a larger tendon or longer tendon or the, the uh, for example the biceps um, it's just a good proxy that you can use for yourself you can if you flex your biceps to 90 degrees 
and then you can see how many fingers you can um, squeeze in there. Yep. And if you can squeeze four fingers in there, for example, that is bad in terms of muscle length. And it means that even if you develop a huge biceps, you can get a great peak, yep. but it's just not going to cover the entire arm. So you're never going to get that Phil Heath-like flow. Yeah, it's going to be more like the tennis ball look as opposed to the football. Exactly. So um, these factors, and also for your chest and for your abs, like we, we discussed, they, they're fixed. So the, the, in that regard, the muscle shape is something you, you cannot do anything about. And it's also something you therefore shouldn't worry about. Yeah. If you cannot control it, don't worry about it. Yeah. So just get the know, best just, the best abs you can get. Yeah, exactly. And I think almost everyone ends up being quite happy of what they're at because like we said, almost no one is screwed in every regard. Yeah. So you might not have, you know, that, that armor plate looking chest and the full six pack abs, but you know, maybe you have a very aesthetic back or you do have like the quad sweep or the or the calves, you know, yep. and there are all these other people. So you might look at my physique, for example, and you're like, oh, look at those broad shoulders. But then, you know, your quads and your calves might be a lot better. So almost no one is screwed in every regard. Yeah. Okay, great. So yeah, I think that's, that's just a, that's a good summary of it. And I would add to that for just people listening again, you'll kind of know this as you, you put a couple years of training in and build your foundation of muscle. Uh, and then and I would say also, I think body fat percentage is worth mentioning um, in that, you know, you're going to look quite different as a guy at 15%, uh, you know, than 10% or even as you get under 10%. I think like the chest in particular, uh, I know that with me with you know, the, the fatter I am, the more rounded my chest looks and the, you know, it's again, it's, I just, it's just not the look that I like, but then if I get lean and then get very lean, my chest does have a flatter look and has a better look. So there's also that just, just to, for people listening that you, it's hard to know really what your aesthetic potential is until you get into the lower body fat ranges, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the more reasons that I think everyone, um, it's, it's one of the best experiences in your life to get down to a really seriously lean body fat percentage at one point. Well, not just teach you all these aesthetic things, but you'll learn so much in the process. It's yeah. really one of the things everyone should do, like the, the non-BS bucket list. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Would you say, though, that you know you have to be able to give it up, though, too, without... Because you know, there's that now where anything, if you get really lean, anything higher almost just is less satisfying. And now you have like this new standard that you've kind of set for yourself. Yeah, it, that definitely. But that's one of the nice things you learn that there's always a trade off. And then you learn like a lot of people, they, they just think I want to be as lean as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, then once you've actually been that lean, like now for me, I was in contest shape for a really long period because during my last contest prep, I had to switch show and then I had to move about seven times or so and wow. i ended up being basically in contest shape for i think in total probably about nine months wow which is uh, it takes its toll yeah so um now i've i really generally don't care about yeah. being that lean anymore so um i'm just got it out of your system <laughs> yeah i mean i'm in asia now and all these different foods are here to try and i'm like you know, I can get that lean again in a few months. Yeah, I have all I have all the tools, and it's just a matter of putting my mind to it, and then I'll do it. But there's no point in me staying that lean long term. 
yeah. right now. So that's a nice thing. You get the control and you are aware of the trade-offs and it really puts things into perspective. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a good point. All right, well, we could go on for probably quite some time talking about all kinds of things. Um, so to, to wrap up here, where can people find you and find your work? And then also you were mentioning a PT course. I know people are going to want to hear about that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you can find basically all my stuff and my team stuff on BayesianBodybuilding.com. And, and if you want to just spell, spell that out so people. Yeah, Bayesian. Well, just link it. Like Bayesian. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll put, yeah, I'll put it. Uh, yeah. B-A-Y-E. So, yeah. yeah, and we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and looking into a few other things. Um, but those are the big ones, and you can find them all as well. Uh, can, we have a newsletter, so you can just check it out, see if you're interested. Yeah, and um, just so I'll throw in there that I don't follow regularly too many people in in this space, uh, just because I find it it's not productive, but you're one of the, one of the guys that I regularly read. And, you know, I, you're, you, you obviously know what you're talking about. And, uh, so I recommend everybody listening, go follow Menno, follow his work and you will Appreciate learn, it. you will learn things. I hope so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So if, is there any, are there any projects that you have that you're working on now that are coming up that you want people to know about? Uh, not particularly. We're, uh, I'm knee deep in uh, an English PT course and a Dutch PT course and just doing a lot of coaching at the moment. Cool. Um, we're expanding a social media outreach, so we're going to post a lot of infographics on cool new studies. Nice. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, uh, that's, I think that's a wrap. I uh, really appreciate, again, you taking the time. It's been very informative. I know people are really going to uh, like the interview because, again, these are questions that get asked, and that's why it's on my list. I'm like, I need to do a podcast. I need to find someone really good on this. So I think uh, you've delivered perfectly. So I, you'll, uh, I think you'll probably get some feedback from people. My pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, it's Mike again. Hope you liked the podcast. If you did, uh, go ahead and subscribe. I put out new episodes every week or two um, where I talk about all kinds of things related to health and fitness and general wellness. Also, head over to my website at www.muscleforlife.com where you'll find not only past episodes of the podcast, but you'll also find uh, a bunch of different articles that I've written. Um, I release a new one almost every day, actually. I release kind of like four to six new articles a week. Um, and you can also find my books and everything else that I'm involved in over at muscleforlife.com. All right. Thanks again. Bye.